Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies. Sometimes we achieve outstanding pairings, other times we give ourselves the opportunity to watch the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am your host, Carlos Cooper, with me as always. Joe Hilliard. And Dave Gurney. And today we are going to talk about beer and then also a movie or two. Hopefully two beers. We're going to talk about Maybe two. Maybe in that order. We'll see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so what's the beer that we have? The beer that we have uh, is a beer out of uh, Ursula Brewing, Ursula Brewery out of Aurora, Colorado, and it is called Big Bully Stole My Lunch. It is an imperial peanut butter and jelly porter. Mm. Not a stout, but a porter. And it clocks in at, oh my gosh, I thought I just had the ABV. I don't. All right. Always drink fresh. Always drink fresh. Always drink fresh. Repeatedly printed on the can. They are serious they about it. They want you to drink no it fresh. Aging on this one. 12%. 12%. Oh, Ayo. Right. Starting it off well. So it's stout then. That's a, that's a, that's a potent <laughs> they, peanut butter and jelly. It, it's, a, it's a tough one. It's a peanut a butter one. and jelly porter. Porter and stouts are, to me, the hardest beers to differentiate. Oh, oh the, absolutely. The difference between to the two? To come up with a clear way to tell somebody... Especially somebody that doesn't drink as much, you know, maybe craft beer as we do, or right. isn't as necessarily interested in the nuances of beer. Uh, it's so hard to find a way to describe the difference between the two of those. Yeah, it is super dark. I mean, it is. It looks like an imperial stout. I mean, there, there's nothing to differentiate that visually, and. and and the and nose, I mean, I am can? getting a lot of peanut butter. A stovepipe. A stovepipe can? Why is it yeah. called that? I don't know. I mean, it's definitely, you know, you, you have the pounder terminology or the uh, tall boy. Tall boy. Love which tall uh, boy. Th- those are typically the 16-ounce cans. I think it's just to differentiate, and I don't know where the stovepipe concept comes from. but I haven't tasted it yet, but, yeah, there's a lot of peanut butter on the nose. Yeah. Yeah, and I even get a little fruit, a little yeah. fruit hint. So Color's nice. Maybe yeah. some jelly. Colors. Can't wait to dive in. Uh, we, of course, last week... Speaking discu- of diving in. We discussed Dolomite, and Dolomite is my name. And we did have a lot of fun on social media with those two. But I, I, want, I one of the uh, responses, uh, someone posted this underneath one of our posts about the Dolomite, and Dolomite is my name. Eric Cantu writes... This movie strikes a close, umbling nerve with me. I couldn't help but remember what I went through trying to make my feature film and relate to this character. Mm -hmm. No one wants to take a chance on you or give you a shot. you got to do everything yourself. You have to learn on the fly. Yet it is still awesome because you assemble a cast and crew that have love for the film no matter what, and together you make it the best you can. I thought that was a great, uh, uh, not synopsis of the film at all, but uh, it does, like I said at the beginning of the review, I love movies about making movies. Yeah. And when there's a lot of obstacles in the way, and there certainly were for Rudy Ray Moore when he made Dolomite, yeah. you can relate if you've ever tried to make a film before. And I think the three of us have all been involved in little filmmaking projects. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think it's a good... Uh, Everything goes wrong. It's a good <laughs> nutshelling of the spirit of Dolomite mm-hmm. is my name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess maybe a little bit of the plot too. But um, as somebody that has been involved in an Eric Cantu project... Oh, you know Eric? Yeah, okay. I do. Um, I was never... Uh, I don't think I was ever on set for any of his things. But I did have... S- Maybe I was on set for a day. It was a really long time ago. We were, he was 
exiting the film program as I was kind of coming into it. Oh, okay. Um, you but guys were classmates, students yeah, together, same program. We were in the same screenwriting class together. I think mm-hmm. he had already graduated and was just doing it for fun, though. I don't know. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> he wrote a really fucking funny script, though, that uh, I wish would have gotten made uh, for a short. But everyone that worked on his films was always 100% in all the time. Yeah. He definitely had that kind of charisma that Rudy Ray Moore had where you were like, okay, this guy believes in this so much, I'm going to believe in this to the exact same level. High praise. I would suggest, if you're not already on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that you uh, jump on it, and Carlos will tell you how to do that at the end of the episode. Yeah, I will, so you better stick around. Most definitely. Uh, Also, another callback to prior episodes, we were talking a little bit about uh, the kind of dust-up in... uh, not it's not Shiner, Texas. What where is the town? Hmm? No, oh, it Shiner, is. Okay, yeah. where Shiner Bach is? I guess it's the brewery, Spetzel Brewery. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, Carbach, which is now owned by AB InBev, and it kind of led us into a discussion about these acquisitions on the part of these sort of mega conglomerates, these holding companies that have uh, picking you know, off those craft breweries one right. by one. And uh, a notable one. Uh, has just been picked up by a different company, Lion Little World Beverages, which is, I I think, their most known holding uh, before this was uh, Japan's Kirin Brewery. I I buy it whenever I eat eat sushi. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a a real uh, staple of uh, American sushi bars to uh, to have Kirin available. But uh, they have picked up New Belgium Brewery out of Colorado. shocking. On its face, before you get into the details, that is shocking. Mm. I feel shocked. Bold move, yeah. <laughs> this is, uh, I mean, this is kind of a big deal because they were part of that real, I guess, second wave of craft brewing back in the 90s. Um, maybe even earlier than that, actually. When I when I say that, now I'm questioning myself. But they were definitely well before the big third wave in the 2010s. Um, yeah. well, what are we calling this decade? Have we, have we landed on that yet? I don't know. 2010s? The, yeah, the, the, the 2010s. 20 teens? 20, 2010s. Yeah, I don't 2010s. Know. But, uh, you know, they, they had established themselves Fat Tire. Their Amber Ale was kind yeah. of their flagship, and that was all you around the country. couldn't escape the bicycle logo. I right. Mean, everyone knows Fat Iconic, Tire. Iconic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the but, bottle, too, because it had the ring around the neck. Yeah. 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 Symbolized. And they were some of the earliest to get in on the Sour Train before Sour's were really huge. They had their, their Sears. Yeah. Well, that, that stuff didn't get distributed quite as widely until more recently. And then they've also been, out of all the old school craft breweries, one of the few that's really stayed on top of trends, like with the... Yeah, they have done that. You're right. Yeah. So, you know, we were so, just talking about that. <laughs> spill, senses, spill, man. Minor spill. But it's, you know, it is really kind of... I don't know. Uh, however you want to think about it, notable when a brewery yeah. of that kind of stature sells out. Yes. If you want to put it that way, I mean, well, and the conversation I mean, we had last week was: when do you draw the line? When do you say sellouts and you mm, quit drinking their beer? They, I mean, they are by definition, I would say, selling out. Um, now, interesting um, little tidbit in my relationship with craft beer in general throughout my entire life. Fat Tire was probably the first time that I ever had any idea that there were tiers of beer. Right. Uh, I know what you mean. I remember... Like, not like when you drink something so good it makes you cry yeah, kind of tears. And, and you not tear when there's a tear in your beer because I'm crying for you, dear. You were <laughs> no, always on the No, but T-I-E-R. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
because I remember I remember my mom ordering it a bunch and it looking different mm-hmm. than yeah. what I was right. used to it's, seeing. It's not just that know? pale yellow of the uh, Budweiser. Not, well, not the... just the beer, but you could eat. I mean, even if you know it never, you never saw it out of. The, even if someone's drinking it straight from the bottle, you could tell just based on the like label art. This is a different, different. thing, right? Than a Bud Light or right. a Miller or you know whatever. Um, and so I, I don't know. I always found that kind of interesting. And then especially the fact that when I did start drinking craft beer, I didn't care for Fat Tire that much. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I haven't looked. I, I haven't looked for it or ordered it in a very long time. But they, you know, for my money, have one of the better like hazy shelfies that you can get at the supermarket. Is that the Ranger? The, the juicy hazy yeah, yeah, yeah. Voodoo Ranger. Yeah, yeah. IPA. yeah that Ranger, one's pretty yeah. good. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that one and like the Sam Adams one, I think, are the most like widely available in that genre. And of maybe beer. the Sierra Nevada hazy little thing. Yeah, it's not as hazy as the other two. No, but it calls it. I mean, it it's, it's trying to be yeah. that. Yeah, and, and you can I mean, buy it at any grocery store. I think the flavor profile is very similar too mm-hmm. in the right. Sierra Nevada. Just the the not as look. hazy. Um, but there's a wrink- yeah, there's those a, three. There's a wrinkle to this sale, yes, David, and, and, and you brought it up in a conversation right. we were having uh, before now, and that is that this is a comp- uh, an employee owned company. Right. So they, so a few years back. So yeah, they, I just checked the dates on this. They started in '91. Um, and and were initially a private company, but then they were growing and growing. And in the 2010s, kind of riding that wave of craft beer exploding, um, they expanded significantly. And kind of along with that, they turned themselves into an employee-owned company, kind of giving all their employees a stake in the company, which seemed like a a great move at the time, benevolent. Um, But I think they got expansion fever maybe a little too, too much. Um, as, as did maybe some some breweries um, other than them. You know, they, they opened a facility in Asheville, North Carolina. They also opened a second one in Denver, you know, after uh, their in, uh, initial one in Fort Collins. So they had three different sites that they're doing this brewing. They're trying to move to a different level. No they doubt. were the fourth yeah. largest craft brewer at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, given the way that they had been sort of really intensely marketing and, and to some extent chasing trends, I think they were a little bit, over their heads with the uh, w- with the expansion, and so I think they needed to do something. My guess is that they were seeing the writing on the wall that they weren't necessarily going to be able to sustain themselves, and that if they went under, that means all those employees who are part of you know part owners are going to suffer financially for it, which so, is a motivation to sell. Yeah, so I mean, to me, even though you may pinch your nose and you know hold your breath when you right. do it, you know, when we were talking about Carbach. Uh, you know, a couple weeks back or a week back or whatever, you know, Carlos made the point that from what everybody said, they were really, they were a brewery that was created wanting to build itself to a point where it sells so that those few owners who, who had a stake in it would make some money off it. I don't think New Belgium was ever that. I don't think they were ever gunning for this. And in fact, I think the move that they made to go employee-owned, they were trying to actually stay away from that and just be this company that kind of grew benevolently. And unfortunately, market forces were not at their, uh, you know, best aligned for them. Mm -hmm. And I think they did probably a move that they felt they had to do. Now, in that sense, it doesn't make me turn my nose up quite as much as I normally would. Yeah, I think I I think I agree. Yeah, I, I mean, a situation in which a buyout is going to directly benefit its employees, right? It's not a bad situation. And that was our question last time we had this conversation was, when do you draw the line 
Carbach, the line is drawn. I will never drink another Carbach beer again. If I'm at a place and Carbach is the only thing that I can do, then I'm going to uh, say no. Thank you, alcohol. This is uh, at the 10 year challenge. Okay. 2009 Carbach, 2019 ABM. <laughs> okay. I, I finally we'll, got that. Pretty I, good. We'll post that meme on our. Yeah. Our now, if I'm at a bar. And it is owned by, uh, the beer lines rather are owned, if you will, by a distributor. And the only option is going to be a New Belgium offering. I think I'll still enjoy it until I start to see that quality suffer. And then, of course, to me, that's always the line. When the quality goes down and the beer's not as enjoyable, I'm out. Well, and honestly, the the Little Lion, they may have presence internationally, Mm -hmm. but I don't think they're in any position to be taking over entire bars here in the United States anytime soon. And changing recipes. Right. So so I don't see that being a a factor in the same way that AB InBev has been with, with some of these. So... We'll see. Like, I'm always on the side of David against that Goliath. <laughs> I'm happy to have you on my side. <laughs> <laughs> and Goliath happens to be one of Carlos's many nicknames. Yes. Uh, right. Okay. <laughs> I was unaware. Um, and a more positive craft beer uh, piece of news. Also local here, we, we, going back to the beer uh, and a movie Texas. and an acquisition. Yeah, yeah. it's a more, uh, more Texas situation. Um <laughs> Brash Brewing Company held a black mass at their brewery recently. <laughs> and, uh, now, this is news I'm not aware of. Fill in, me in. in. In collaboration with the uh, Satanic Temple of Houston. Okay. Because um, they have a beer called Black Mass. Okay. It's like a coffee stout. Yeah. Beer. And so yeah, they were you know, doing a bottle release and were like, oh, we'll do. And it, it was like a ticketed event like after brewery hours. Uh-huh. Like the brewery closed at 10 uh-huh. p.m. The Black Mass started at 11. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like a whole silly fun thing that they did that like you know if you wanted to do it you could if not Mm -hmm. like you know whatever just don't go yeah Mm -hmm. but there were hundreds hundreds of people on the other side of the street from their brewery doing some kind of rosary protest from their brewery could they on the other side of the street? Oh, okay, okay. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I misunderstood it, you before. It was a very Westboro type Under- situation. Right. Saying like, and granted, they were doing it in the middle of the day uh-huh. when the event was like at 11 p.m. And um, there have been so many things <laughs> things that have come out on the internet, um, especially ones oh, we got to Bra- post some of those. Especially ones that Brash has been posting. We'll share some of their stuff, but this one's really funny. This was when it first kind of came out. I missed uh, this. Rosemary of Reparation for Satanic quote Black Mass and quote at Brash Brewing. Um, they're doing this thing. It's a mockery of the Holy Sacrifice Mass. Blah 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 blah. When and where I said the whole thing, and. If you follow Brash Brewing on any social media, it's basically a meme account. There's, like, not a whole lot of beer <laughs> talk no, on it. Right. Uh, it's a lot of memes, but it, this couldn't have gone any better for them. It says, for more information, contact Karen at blah, 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 <laughs> which is, like, the most can-I-speak-to-the-manager name that a human being could have. Yeah. And that was hilarious. Unless you listening are named Karen, and we think your name is awesome. Um, they... Let's see. Uh, is this place kid friendly? Only if your children are metal AF. Uh, <laughs> and then above it is something about the black mass or whatever. There was um, another one. They have zero religious tolerance. Blah blah blah. blah. And, I mean, Brash is eating all this shit up. Of like course. every mm-hmm. negative thing somebody posts about. Of course. Them, they're reposting. Of course. And I, I, I quite frankly find it hilarious. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of propaganda, let's talk about some of our films. Uh, I, I think that. Um, the folks that are protesting against the Satanic Temple's inclusion in a brewery's fun yeah. have never seen the film Hell Satan, 
which if you haven't seen it, I have not. You need to watch it. It talks about the rise of the satanic. Sa- it talks temple. about the rise of the satanic temple and what it's all about. Yeah. And how it's not about Satan at all. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not. They're, they're all atheists, and it's yeah. like a whole... It's fantastic. ...just theatrical thing. And I, I And I think the funniest thing about this is, like, people getting... It's just so, like, emblematic of, like, where American political discourse is at. Because if you know anything about Brash Brewing Company, like, they're like a metal brewery. Like, mm-hmm. the only yeah. music on their jukebox is metal. Mm-hmm. Like, right. so many of their beer names are, like, Vulgar either display. just offensive or metal references mm-hmm. or whatever, you know? And, like, so obviously this is something they're going to do and think is, like, funny and, like, tongue-in-cheek or whatever. But, yeah. of course, somebody sees something. And that, your outrage helps them. Yeah. Your outrage helps sell beer. It Potentially. It is, it is interesting, though, because I do follow them. I mean, I, as a brewery, I've enjoyed their beers over their the years. Beers are Sadly, good. and it's weird. We get like very inconsistent distribution down here. Occasionally, a couple bars here will get kegs. It's available was, through Benny Keith. I know, but they don't. But bars don't get it all that much. I, I mean, I remember for a long time, Alamo had the Cali Green IPA on all the time. I don't remember. And that. that, yeah, and it was like my go-to when I was there. But they haven't had it for I think over a year now. What's yeah. your go-to there now? Um, when you go to the Alamo, yeah, uh, our, our theater of choice. Let's mm-hmm. just be honest, and because you can drink a delicious craft beer there, as opposed yeah. to the other chain theaters here in town that are serving nothing but right, the bad boys. Yeah. Uh, what's your go-to now? For it, me, it's a local. I, I was gonna say it's usually one of the local three yeah. that that get that you can get there. I guess Nueces probably has a tap handle. There if they now. don't, they'll get they, the ones. No, I don't know. No, they have. I think they have two now. Okay, uh, the, <laughs> but usually I, I heard it. Usually the Rebel Toad or Lorelei, yeah. what, whatever they have. Occasionally, what Lazy Beach has mm-hmm. on. So you know, it, it kind of goes around. But for a while, when it was brash out of Houston. I felt real good about getting a tasty IPA that they were uh, bringing down here. So let's use the propaganda of the brash story. Thank you for bringing that up. And the Alamo is a beer-to-movie transition. Let's get right into our movie, shall okay. we? Okay. Yeah. I saw it at Alamo. So yeah. Transition complete. <laughs> Got him. That's right. Some high-quality broadcasting. Uh, so, yeah, you, you know from the title of the episode, most likely, um, yeah. <laughs> already what we're going to be talking about, but it is the film Jojo Rabbit, yep. released uh, this fall. Actually, back in October, but it's been a limited release thing where it's kind of been, you know, a tiered thing it's coming out to different markets. Yeah. So we, we only got it here in uh, South Texas just uh, a couple weeks back. So here we are in kind of, well, I guess this episode's dropping in early December, so it may still no. be playing. Yeah. This episode's dropping. This is our Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Eve episode. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, you're right, everybody. You're right. Okay, yeah. Eat some yeah. turkey. Okay. Right before the end of December. So late late November. Um, it may still be playing in your market as you're listening to this. Could be. And, uh, and if it's not, uh, d- don't be sad because I don't think it got to every place in the great nation. Yeah. But uh, who wants to take a stab at doing a plot summary on this film? Essentially, you have a young boy, uh, Johannes Betzler, who is uh, nicknamed Jojo who is a Hitler youth. He's about 10 years old. And he is fully behind Hitler in all of his... As most uh, 10-year-old boys in Germany probably were. Perhaps. And uh, to the point where he has created in his mind a imaginary friend version of Hitler mm-hmm. that he visits with occasionally. And as he's trying to be a good Hitler youth throughout the film, he's constantly kind of having these exchanges with his imagined version of Hitler, um, who is played by Taika Waititi, the, the director, director of the yeah. film. 
and uh, and and that's kind of it in its base. And where things conflict comes in is when he realizes that in his own home there is a young Jewish girl that is being hidden away, and how, and Frank style, right? Um, and yeah. how he sort of deals with that is kind of the main thrust of the plot of the film. When the mother, the, the woman he loves more than anything. Is the one who is breaking, if you will, breaking the rules, right? While sending him off to the the, the Nazi summer camp yeah. uh, that that one might go to if they were a ten year old boy in uh, Germany during World War Two, right? That's about as much plot as I guess as you need. Yeah, because the plot's that's a lot of plot. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. a lot of plot in the film certainly, but the star of the film, and correct me if I'm wrong, is 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 the quirk. Is the uh, is is the imagined version of Hitler? Well, no, I mean just the quirky, offbeat nature of this product. Yeah, this movie is unlike almost anything I've ever seen. Yeah, it is. It is quirky, and I mean, it kind of, um, you know, I mean, it's definitely meant to present the Third Reich as being rather foolish. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I think that um, I mean, I think the I think the kid is fucking good in it. And I don't think there's one bad acting performance in this film. No, there's. They, not, I mean, and, across and you, the board, amazing. And you get it, you get it up front, like mm-hmm. right when you start, you see Sam Rockwell crushing, amazing. Alfie Allen crushing. Mm-hmm. Rebel, <laughs> Stephen Merchant from Rebel The Office, Wilson, UK. God, Stephen Merchant's so fucking funny. But, but, yeah, he's, but yeah, so he only has good. a brief yeah. bit in it, but, but he's so good. good in a way that I've never seen him be amazing before. I, he's always been funny. I love The Office, UK. He, I, you know, he only appeared in it a couple of times. He's been in yeah. a couple of little things. Well, amazing. A, well, Scarlett a, Johansson, amazing. That's the thing about about Stephen Merchant is I wish he was in stuff more. I think he's that he will be after this. I, see, I, I think I think the secret there is he is great when he is in there just for that little bit of flavor that you need to like kind of set a scene off its axis and yeah. kind of like because it, not that I've like ever been put off by him, but his uh, series Hello Ladies for HBO where he was actually the I lead that was character. Funny. It was funny, but it definitely didn't have the same kind of yeah. for me, the same it kind of It didn't demonstrate power. the same gravitas that he did in this. I mean he But I he's mean, you're right, a small role, no reason to But he I mean he is definitely more of a supporting actor and I Yes am okay with that mm-hmm. and I am not saying that I want to see him break out into a leading You just want to see more support He's just not in, in stuff places. that often. Sure. Like, I, most I, of the I time he's like behind the scenes or like I love that Idiot Abroad show where yeah, him right. and it was just him and Ricky Gervais talking to each other about how they could torment this poor man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Carl Pilkington, Pilkington who, yeah. is, who um, is The film idol. lives and dies by the, by the introduction of Hitler and if you buy the quirk and the tongue in cheek of the Hitler character now that that is the writer director of the film means that you are either going to be in good hands or bad hands i'll just jump to it i think this movie is near perfect in a way that Mm. rushmore is near perfect i had such an amazing experience watching this movie and it's all performance driven Mm -hmm. and i know when we get into the second half of the film i'm going to be coming back to this if we don't want to mix the two up right now i'm sorry i think if we get into the second half of the episode i think that 
I mean, we get, not if, when, we get, nah, if we get to a second half, after I like this existential ABV, crisis we're yeah. having right now. We may not even get now, to Carlos. The second your half reaction to my notion of this being a near perfect film uh, surprises me. I, I, I thought we'd almost be unanimous on this thing. I know all three of us were really looking forward to watching it. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. That is, but that is high praise. Near perfect mm. along the the, yeah. the level of Rushmore for me. I mean, I guess that I, I mean, I, I can't say that I disagree with that. I guess I just hadn't quite thought of it that way. I was watching I, magic I, the whole time I was I, there. I, yeah, I mean, I guess now that, now that you say it that way, I was going to say I never really stopped to think about what could possibly be wrong with it, but I guess that would be evidence of it being a near-perfect film that I never had a moment where I had a qualm or something where I'd be like, well, was that? Or there was never... I never had any doubt about it being great. So mm-hmm. yeah, it is a near-perfect film. It is... Um, it is slightly performance driven, but I think that uh, I think a lot of, and I guess this is performance too. But it's like you know also, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Balderdash. Yes. I'm just gonna uh, say funny <laughs> words until I get. You know. No, it's uh, um, you can't separate the performance from the fact because I think the kid is the best part of it. Like I think he's so good. In mm-hmm. it. Oh yeah. And like his ability to do what he does in the movie is what keeps us along for the ride. And I mean, yes, he is supported by Scar Joe and Stephen Merchant and Sam Rockwell, especially Sam Rockwell. He's Love so Rockwell. good. Um, and you know, Alfie Allen and rebel Wilson mm-hmm. and all these other characters and stuff. Um, but I think what really keeps you locked in is that a, his performance is great and B it's like you're watching him be confronted with the fact that he is like seeing a Jewish person for the first time and going back and forth between interacting with that person and then also asking his superiors like, so can she read my mind? Or, you know, like, mm-hmm. and all of these ridiculous things that he's been told about them. And he's like looking at her trying to find those things. And it doesn't, you can see as the film goes on that he's like, oh, this is kind of Mm kind of silly that you know and starts to like believe it less and less obviously as he grows fond for this girl as well and i think that especially now i mean that's such a i can't find any other words (laughs) the Um, the 12 percent went straight to your head an important message to to a resonant it's it's so like Uh, pertinent to like what is current? What the way people currently behave? Yeah. You know, especially what's the way people you know, have always certain side way of, people have always behaved. Yeah, yeah. I think, that's true. That I is think true. There's, there's a very you know the, tribalism is kind of what it get you know like this idea that if we just paint the other as being something and totally reprehensible. Hey, those people having the black mass in the brewery, they're terrible, and they're the thing that's ruining our as, lives. As, especially the, if we have enough power to be able to say that we are the majority. Right, right. And and, and in Germany, the, the Nazis were the majority. So right. like them or not like them, you still had to follow them. Yeah. Well, you did, you did at least in... Because uh, they had the know, guns. At, they had the power. They the had face, the face. But then part of what this movie does, and now... I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. I, I like this film, okay? So I'm, I'm not at all saying that I didn't like this film. Right. But where I've seen criticism put towards it and where I can see the points that people are making is, A, you know, is this, um, is this being too forgiving of Nazi Germany in some ways? Like, think about it. Sam Rockwell, he's one of the big Nazi figures in the film, but he's not invested in it. And in fact, we see him undercut the sort of Nazi position in several moments in the film. Um, he, he's not really invested in it. He's just going along with it. And it kind of gives him an out as but, a character. But is that because he's been forsaken by the Third Reich? And thus, towards the end of realizing how 
unimportant he is to them Mm -hmm. and how dispensable he is thinking like the fuck am i gonna fucking die for these people for i i understand but he doesn't go all the way to actually resist he doesn't go the you know the the full right so that's what you know it, it sort of gives this character who is the embodiment of yeah not every german was actually a nazi yeah they went along with it because that kind of became the prevailing force but they weren't really invested in it and, you know, it kind of gives that character an out. We end up liking him a lot, I think. You know, the, the movie leads us to wanting to like him. Um, even even the mother character, she, on the surface, is trying to play the good Nazi woman, or, the, or, or at least the party supporter. Scarlett Johansson? Yeah, even though behind the scenes she's doing all this stuff to kind of mm-hmm. undercut the Nazi cause. And, and actually Which gets... I, I was going to say, she's more actively organizing some type no, of resistance No, she is, effort. she is. And her husband... But she's probably is too. But she's sending her son to Hitler Youth Camp, and she's well, yes, yeah, so they don't kill her son, right? Right. <laughs> you know, there's like sta- there's states. I have involved. two answers to your question. No, I guess, but but I'm just saying, you know, the, if if we understand that, okay, this is a film that's populated primarily with characters that we never see as truly nefarious, right? There's no actual embodiment of Nazi evil, even Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> the only version of Hitler we get in this film. Now, I think there's a good reason for it. Yeah. It is the fictionalized, imagined version of Hitler through a 10-year-old boy's imagination mm-hmm. who just knows him as this larger-than-life figure that he's probably seen on movie screens. Yeah, and, never probably know. seen in person. No, no. So, I mean, it totally makes sense. And yet, you got to think, as an audience, the only introduction that we have to nazis in this film in any real way is through the sam rockwell character right the taika watiti take on hitler so but also the boys that he's now in the she's actually with. probably the most nefarious mm-hmm. although yeah. she's also silly yeah yeah she's nefarious but what about the boys in the camp one of them just like snaps a rabbit's neck and like without flinching yeah no that's true the, though i, I kind of put that in leagues with like the typical like you know Future teenage, sociopathic teen, teen, yeah. bully kind I, of I have two stuff. answers to your question. The first is that uh, as the oldest person in the room, I'm 30 years... 30, I'm 30 years... <laughs> we I'm, need a bell. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> as the oldest person in the room, I am still 30 years removed from World War II. Yeah. Which means that the audience of this film, if you consider the director, if you consider the tone, is going to be younger and distant from. Oh, yeah. Okay? So, therefore, our... Nazi World War II education in film is typically stoic officers, humorless officers. I'm thinking um, uh, Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking Saving Private Private Ryan. These are folks that are um, the villains, and we would imagine why that they are. But they're also, uh, but but, but we're also not going to see a (laughs) downfall. Overlord. We're also not going to see. (laughs) Now, until you get to Inglorious Bastards, right, where you get to see um, a Nazi, uh, Christoph Waltz, yeah. mm-hmm. who is not unevil, but has... Oh, super evil. Super he evil. is very evil, but, he's not but he has a sense of humor. He has this other side. And what this movie does is present them as rank and file, present them as we are humans mm-hmm. doing a job. We'll do our job well, but we'll fart around at the water cooler like other humans do when they are at their job. Yeah. So it's okay to lighten it up in that respect. But the second thing is, at what point when you decide as a director writer to tackle a um, subject that is going to be sensitive for a large number of people, do you have to 
carry the weight of the world on your shoulders? Are we allowed when we are pursuing some kind of art- artistic pursuit to turn it on its ear and not be persecuted for that when we are ultimately, by using satire and humor, pointing a really humorous and this is ridiculous light at the very subject that we all agree, unless you're a white supremacist or Holocaust denier or both uh, horrible. <laughs> they often go hand in hand. I was going to say typically. It is <laughs> presented as horrible, but not in right. a Schindler's List no, way. I, I get it, and, and you know, and I. So take that, devil's advocate. Right, and I agree. I'm just pointing out that th- that that is a critique that's been levied at the film, and and I do sort of get where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Now, I I think if this were the only film that anybody ever saw about Nazi Germany. Um, then I think it would be a, a pretty bad, or the only history lesson they ever got on Nazi Germany, that would be pretty terrible. They are buffoons. Right. but uh, And that's okay, because they were. in the context of what we know already... And our and, American and villains today us, are buffoons. Right. Um, that that I, think, I think it does well. And I really did love this idea of what is Hitler to an actual German in that time, right? I think... Not that everybody is a 10-year-old boy going around and doing that, but of course you put in your own mind all these things onto this big public figure that you imagine you would want there, right? Of course he would be very uh, sympathetic and comforting Mm -hmm. and fatherly, and he'd be warming the bed up for you, Mm -hmm. and he'd be doing all these kind things and asking you kind questions and, and encouraging you to do the things you wanted to do anyway. I mean, I think that that... There's a reality to that that's pretty profound when, when you think about it. It's like, you know, pick any major figure, but like anybody who you love. Like, who is Bernie Sanders to somebody who's a Bernie supporter, but this person who embodies all these things that they want will solve to all my problems as a 10 year old boy in these probably pretty scary times. My problems are different than a- right, right. Who Who is, you know, any huge celebrity politician public figure that you're seeing you know it's it's going to be a mix of who they are what they say on whatever platform they have but also your emotional investment what you want them to be and then while the movie starts off super absurd it gets real i mean yeah spoiler alert his mother is hanged in the town square yeah i mean there are um the same schindler's list uh, we will use that now as an adjective um ramifications for you know supporting Jews mm-hmm. in hiding yeah that doesn't stop now does the movie end with a dance number yes it does but of course it does because it's going to be a quirky anti-reality reality to a very very serious thing but at the end of the day the villains are still the villains they're just exposed for being like I said earlier buffoons yeah I think the buffoons that they fucking were yeah I mean I think that the I think the thing about this movie is, I mean, and I, I get, you know, on an intellectual level, I suppose, understand the like, you know, argument that has been, as David said, levied against us that he brought up. But as somebody who has said on a number of occasions that I never want to see another World War II film in my entire life, I think that this was a really refreshing kind of take on it. It made that genre kind of interesting again it brought a new perspective to it and i think that at this point in the history of american filmmaking we have seen the other version enough times that we fucking get it and like also you know 
just history in general. Mm-hmm. We understand the kind of very nefarious sociopathic, you know, people that these were. And I think it is interesting to kind of, and you know, and I, to, I think it's interesting to kind of look at it from a different perspective to paint, you know, Hitler as this imaginary friend buffoon kind of character because everything he says is ridiculous. But I think also what's interesting about the Sam Rockwell character is I don't, I don't know that we're supposed to be sympathetic to him. I, you don't think so? I mean, I get that we're not supposed to hate him as much, maybe as we did in the very beginning. Well, and certainly he redeems himself with that. I mean, it it, it all builds up to him taking the fall or or, or giving the boy an out. And it in does. That final, it does in that final scene. But I think you know, I think the moment that we're really supposed to start identifying with him is when we find out that he. Uh, validates the wrong birthday that right. the Jewish yeah, girl right. yeah. gives him. Yeah. But then also his mom still dies. Like, is that because of him? Is it not? Like, that that's never really said. And I think that, I think that we're supposed to look at him and think, like, you didn't say anything ever? Like, I mean, you yeah. did these kind of secretive things. He still had you know? a job to do and would be penalized if he didn't do it. Yeah, and I, you know, I get that side of it as well. I mean, when something as powerful as Human that life. particular movement mm-hmm. come you know as predominant as it was and how strong a hold it had over the nation and how any defectors were dealt with especially mm-hmm. since we're talking about the end of the war here that's also another thing that maybe we hadn't mentioned is that this takes place literally like as the allied forces are invading and the war is about to end so at that point you can kind of see him being like all right, fuck it. I guess I, I read a criticism. I read a criticism about that in the sense of you don't see the true effects of the um, female protagonist, the, the the Jewish girl being hidden, that she gets to live, mm. and that's not real. No, it, it might have been. I mean, she at does. the very end, she does though. Yeah, she? no, she does. Yeah, but there's criticism there in that. Well, that's not showing the horror of the true realities of the hidden Jews, and it's like, well, I know, but on the last day of the war what a celebration that they weren't all exterminated, found, rooted out, and killed. And again, we know uh, all that stuff. Of course we do. Our film vocabulary dictates that we know all of that already. I don't even think it's just the film vocabulary. I think it's the cultural vocabulary. I'm keeping it in context. Well, I know. But also, like, um, and, you know, I don't want to say that, like, you know, every film should be judged on its own merit, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Mm-hmm. Indi- Good point. Individual of everything else. But it's really hard to do in a case of, in this case, where we're talking about subject matter that has been represented on film probably more times than almost anything else. Like, there have been so fucking many World War Two movies over the last, you know, 60, 70 years or whatever. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's hard to remove that. But also, you know, the Diary of Anne Frank is required reading in schools. At least in my school, we had yeah, to read it. And yeah. everybody that I know that went through public school read it at some point. So, at this point, unless you really are just a fucking idiot... And like not paying any attention, you have been presented with how terrible that was for people. Right. You know, like I, I mean, it wasn't even just that book. I read there were several books that I read go, sure. growing up through grade school that dealt with those kinds of stories. And so I think to like, I don't know. I think to give that criticism to this movie is to basically say you have to do it the way that everybody else has done it or yeah. else. Well, know? I think I think it's I think it's a tough uh you know, it's a tough 
sort of measure to take on a movie to say, we need to look at you self-contained, you have to mm-hmm. be a, a fully functional, which I guess is where I, you know, I, I think I don't go along with that criticism at all and that I think you need to view this film in the context of all that cultural and aesthetic and, you know, historical, whether it be in film or in textbooks or in, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, television documentaries that we have seen and and consumed over, you know, our lifetimes, that, yeah, you have to see it in that context. And I think in that, it's it's very hard for me to go along with, with the criticisms that, that, that people... I call it a near-perfect film. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know about perfect, uh, but I really enjoyed it. It's and great. I so think good. that there's great performances in there. We haven't even mentioned, uh, is it Thomason McKenzie, who's the young, uh, uh, the the woman, the the girl, the, is it? Uh, oh, yeah. Elsa, the girl, yes. The girl, um, she's the Jewish girl that's Yes, hiding. right. See, I didn't, I didn't recognize she her. She was in Leave No Trace, which is actually a really good film from a couple years ago, if you okay. uh, get the chance uh, to go back. Yeah, that was... Um, Oh gosh! I don't. I did not anyway. know a lot about the director prior. Of course, he directed one of my favorite. Uh, I know we in this room we have different opinions about the Marvel films, but if you're going to judge them all, Thor Ragnarok is up there at the top of the list yeah, as 100%. far as an enjoyable, fun film. Yeah, and uh, I, I knew be he, the best one. I knew he had directed that, but I'm looking forward now to going back and watching the rest well, of his films. Did you see what we do in the shadows? What what the fuck are y'all doing in the shadows? <laughs> no, I didn't see that. No, amazing. Uh, no, I haven't that, seen it. I'm, I'm gonna go back. I'm doing. That's one of my favorite things about this podcast, and I hope you as listeners do the same thing. Going back to watch all of Bong Joon Ho's films, going back and revisiting all of those Harmony Korine films that I haven't seen. I'm in the process of doing uh, Bong Joon Ho right now. Uh, anyway. Harmony Corinne is definitely high. Yeah, and I will do the same thing with uh, yeah. Takei. Taika Waititi. Taika? That's what I said. If there is any Taika Waititi movie that you need to watch, it's what we do in the shadows. It's, it like, a docu- week, it's like a mockumentary about uh, these vampires, mm-hmm. I guess in New Zealand, right? Yeah. Um, and it is a film made by someone that thought way too hard about the actual real life implications of being a vampire (laughs) and like all the lore that surrounds them like the things they can and can't do and stuff Mm -hmm. like how would that actually in a practical way affect your life Mm -hmm. as like a living or unliving thing right and it's so fucking fun i'm gonna watch it it's got jermaine clement in it from flight of the concords um it's just I mean, it's a master class. I don't want to cut our conversation short, but I know that it's time to wrap it up when there, my beer glass is empty and there's no more beer to pour into it. Yes. And yeah. when you're not shall, we, shall we move on? 12% <laughs> is getting to you. Yeah. Um, it, um, before uh, we, we totally skip over it, I, I was not as impressed with this beer as I thought I was going to be. I big, enjoyed it. Big Bully Stole right, My Lunch by Ursula Brewery. But it was, it was missing some things. I don't know. Like the, the, well, the can says, please drink fresh. The peanut butter doesn't last long. Okay, well, it wasn't the missing peanut butter, honestly. No. For me, it was the mouthfeel. Wasn't wasn't maybe it's because it's a porter and not a stout. Well, maybe I don't know, but it's an imper- it's an imperial <laughs> porter, um, and I didn't feel like it quite. It was a little boozier than I wanted it to be for twelve percent with all those flavors. I feel like there should have been a little more balance there. I mean, it was by no means bad. It just now that I've had so many wonderful right. 
um, you know, adjunct uh, filled stouts and Shouts and out Lindor. Come on the podcast. There you go. Um, Same with you, Mark. I don't mean the, to, the bar is high is what I'm saying. I, I don't mean to pile on, but let me tell you, I didn't have a problem with mouthfeel. I didn't even have a problem with boozy. I had a problem with Carlos's patented uh, cough syrup analogy when it comes huh. to berry. Mm. Uh, the peanut butter was fine. The porter was great, but the jelly portion to me came across with that cough syrupy thing. Mm, okay. And the entire time I was uh, enjoy, I mean, enjoying the, I enjoyed the boozy part actually. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. that just hit you right where you needed you to. Want do. It? Yeah. But yeah, the jelly was the issue for me. The berries in there uh, were a little cough syrupy. Yeah, you know, uh... be it savior, Carlos. Be it savior. So I didn't. As I was drinking, I, I didn't have a problem with anything okay. in particular. Mm-hmm. I got some peanut butter. I definitely got some jelly. I got some of the, you know, that big, bold, 12. you know, 12%, the roastiness of, you know, the style and whatnot. But I will say that I did feel like there was like a... Um, you know, like a lacking, something lacking, you know, how like sometimes there's that, you know, the mysterious umami flavor that people talk about or whatever. Maybe it was lacking that kind of Mm -hmm. mysterious, undefinable something that's in there. Um, And I mean, you know, I don't know. This was canned back in September. Maybe if I had had it closer to it whatever that was would have still been there. Maybe I wanted more peanut butter and I just don't realize it. I don't know. If somebody put another Ursula Brewery beer in your hand, would you try it eagerly? Of course I would. I would too. Yeah. Yeah, no, this doesn't take them off the list. I'm just... No. If I'm thinking, okay... See, I I didn't think it was bad is the thing, but it was missing something. I didn't think it was bad. Just beating a dead horse. <laughs> okay, well, let's movie go. was perfect. Let's go near perfect. Take beer. a break. Beat another dead horse. All right, and then we'll come back and uh, and we'll talk about some more beer and another comic take on Hitler from his very own time period. More beating dead horses when we return. <laughs> All right, and we're back. <laughs> Ooh, and we're back in a smooth way there, for some reason. Uh, well, let, let's see. We, we are going to have something uh, dark and smooth going into our glass here in just a moment. This is... I recognize that bottle top. A 2017 Worldwide Stout, oak-aged vanilla Worldwide Stout from Dogfish Head Brewery out of Delaware. Um, we've had them on the show before, and uh, this is one from my rapidly dwindling cellar. I'm, I'm saying rapidly because I'm willing that into being. I'm, I'm just I'm, <laughs> I'm over this aging beer thing. I'm, I'm just getting these done. Yeah. Um, but this is an 18 percenter. Um, so so we're this this is the beer responsible for the only time I've ever gone to therapy drunk. Was that the therapy drunk beer? It was. Oh, I remember you telling me that story. Yeah, wow. I went in. I Did you drink it like moments prior to therapy, or was it a hangover situation? No, I went to. Um, I had like the morning off one day, and there was there was some new beer that had come into Liquid Town that I wanted to get before they sold out of it. I can't remember what it was. 
Um, but as I was about to go clock in and relieve Josh, I stopped in. I grabbed that one. But uh, Manchester City was about to play a Champions League match, and I knew I was going to be watching it while I was at work. And I was like, you know, I should get a beer to mm-hmm. enjoy the game. Enjoy the game. And the match. The match. Um, and I was looking through their cooler, and I didn't want to buy a whole other six-pack or whatever, so I was looking through the singles section, which, um, no shade, it is not always very good. Uh, and I saw this, and I was like, oh, that sounds good. Uh, I like a stout, you know. Um, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I drank it on a moderately empty stomach, did the get job. to therapy and I'm pretty wasted. Mm-hmm. Uh, only to, only for my therapist to tell me the next week that I seemed much more thoughtful and invested. <laughs> well, let's see if this makes you more thoughtful and invested. And so I, so I asked her if I should come in drunk every week, and she said probably not. <laughs> I won't do it. Well, well, on the bottle it but, says ages well. It does. We'll it, be the judge of that. But. To, to, to validate my story, or to explain my story further, it does not say the ABV on the bottle. Mm-mm. So I when I, right. when I bought it, I did not know it was that high. And it and wasn't until I was almost done with it and I started feeling a certain type of way that I it hit me that... Oh, this fuck. was more than your typical. This is more than I thought style. it was, yeah. and I'm the, drunk now. The last time we had dogfish was when we enjoyed their 180. One, and I, 120. 120. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> you maniac. Coming soon. 120. <laughs> and I recall that I think all three of us thought that the um, high ABV did not go well. Like the bo- It was way too boozy for the, that ABV. It so was I'll that be, and too multi. Yeah, no, there, there's, there's lots of stuff. I'll be curious yeah. to know our verdict on this one. Yeah. What, yeah. what film is the perfect pairing for 2019's Jojo Rabbit? Yeah, well, when when we were talking about doing Jojo Rabbit, uh, it definitely uh, it occurred to me that you know if if I'm thinking about taking Hitler in a more comic direction, uh, the film that comes to mind immediately uh, that I I first saw a number of years ago, I think when I was when I was in college, uh, was uh, was the Great Dictator, Charlie Chaplin's take on Hitler, right back in the very time period that Hitler existed, kind of doing this satirical look at this, you know, what he's calling a great dictator in the title of the film, although sure. obviously undercutting that. There's some there's some irony there built into that title, um, but but clearly a huge figure in the world who was causing some really terrible terrible commotion uh in in the global community at that time it's safe to probably remind our audience if they don't know us well or if they don't remember that you are a professor or a a teacher of film at our local university Mm -hmm. so i'm sure that you have shown chaplin and all of his films or a majority of them to students over the years I have seen all, all of the Chaplin films that one who calls themselves a cinephile, a student of film, should and have, save this one. This was my first viewing of oh, really? The Great Dictator. I'd seen City Lights. You know, okay. I, you'd seen all of the things that makes Chaplin the silent film hero that he is. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, that uh, as time goes by, Buster Keaton is kind of... You're seeing a new revolution where 
people are even saying he is better than Chaplin and just not oh, getting sure. his due. But okay, we don't have to get into that so much. <laughs> this it's just the only reason I bring all of that up is to say if you haven't gone back to look at some Chaplin mm-hmm. and you know his name and Robert Downey Jr.'s performance, you know, portraying him, and it, you should go back and and do that. If you oh, do sure. it in order, this is his first talkie and he had done a lot of silent films even into the talkie era but so when this film came out mm-hmm. and the subject matter that it was having that, that it was portraying in the timeline that it was doing and that it was his first talkie this was a huge film experience yeah w- you know contextually yes Yes, absolutely. So you're right. So they, w- one of the big notable things, if we're thinking about it in terms of where it falls in Chaplin's career in his filmography, is exactly what Joe said. That this is the first real talkie film. He had included a little bit of diet, like tiny bit, in uh, Modern Times, which had come mm-hmm. out just a few years before. But this was the first one where it really, from front to back, was pretty, you know, dialogue driven in a lot of ways. Though there are still some pretty physical, uh, I, I expect that we'll talk talk about yeah. those. Um, but but one of the other gimmicks of this film, or one of the other hooks of it, is that you have Chaplin playing dual roles. Right, mm-hmm, you right. have Chaplin as the uh, Hitler stand-in, Adenoid Hinkle right. uh, is is the name of that character, who uh, is portrayed uh, as being the dictator of Tomania. Oh, Tomania. Thank mm-hmm. you. Yes. Um, this there is a theme right. of the geography of this fictional right. world. Um, but then you also have him playing this lowly Jewish barber um, in the in the course of the film who bears a striking resemblance, as you would expect, it's the same guy, to uh, the Adenoid Hinkle character. So this kind of creates this parallelism in the film where you have these two figures. And you really start... Uh, with the Jewish barber when he's a young man in World War One, right? Yeah, so you get some. You know, th- it struck me. I remember seeing it the first time and and feeling like the first, you know, whatever it is, ten minutes where you're just kind of getting this introduction to this character and him bumbling and fumbling through this war, and you know the the silliness with this cannon that keeps turning and the bomb that doesn't quite explode and then it's about to, you know, it, that there was something you know silly. I didn't know what to think of it. Right. I mean, okay, this do, it just feels like kind of a transposition of some of his early silent shorts. Which, which really... you would expect as an audience member, wouldn't you? Probably. Like, in other words, as I understand, this is a two years long gestating project that everyone had high hopes for. This is the biggest movie star of the day. Yeah. And he's got this secret project. It's his first talkie. It's going to be something about the war that we're, you know, have just lived. Right. Yeah, and the first thirty minutes of it, mm-hmm. I looked at the f- fucking running time <laughs> because the first thirty minutes of it were opportunities for him to display the slapstick silent film with dialogue. I'm sorry, let me start that. Let me say that again: the silent film stardom that he had, but this time with dialogue. Yeah. So you're right. The bombs, the the goofiness with the cannons, the upside down airplane, <laughs> the, which is funny. Which is it funny. is funny. It is funny. And with dialogue, you're seeing. I I, I, I wish that I could get into a time machine. You know yeah, what I mean? And yeah. see this for the first time, having right. known nothing about World War II in cinema between. 
right when right, it came out right. well today. and really you know coming out in 1940 before America this was had this would have been mind blowing yeah before the, i mean this is you're seeing this 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 probably still felt a little bit distant enough that you could sure be laughing at it sure. in this way um and as an englishman being closer to it Right, you're gonna even give him that, yeah. like you know, well, you're you're one degree closer to the to the actual to war than we are. Yeah, originally by birth, although he did serve so, in the states. Right, and do most had of he his... been exiled to England at this point, or like exiled from America? No, the, no, the Red Scare was later, right? Yeah, no, that no, that that didn't, that wasn't overlapping. This that that was post World War Two. This is at the height right, of his that's, powers. That's right. That's right. That's yeah, right. but no, this is you know it, this is Jim Carrey coming right. out with Truman but, Show but after for having me, done. For me, the switch, yeah, the switch came where you get that first um, Adenoid Hinkle scene right at yeah. the rally, and you have uh, you have Chaplin in his Hinkle character doing the ridiculous over the top, but actually. Strangely spot on impersonation of, 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 a, Adolf of a Hitler, Hitler anger rally, right? Yeah. Like that. Apparently, he studied Triumph of the Will, like you know this uh-huh. sort of classic um, propaganda film, uh-huh. Lenny Riefenstahl, um, that you know wowed so many filmmakers at the time for you know the aerial photography and the the um, the amazing crowd scenes and the coordination and all the choreography of it all. And all building up to this rally where Hitler delivers this, you know, just hugely charismatic, supposedly, speech. But, you know, apparently right from the get-go, Chaplin saw that as ridiculous and silly and over-the-top. And he saw him for the demagogue that he was and just wanted to play that to the hilt, which he did. And Uh so I remember seeing that and just that moment, like, kind of winning me over. Like, oh, this is doing something really powerful with the satire that um, goes beyond just like, you know, the tomfoolery of war and the silliness. It's like, this is getting to something deeper about like this cult of personality around Hitler and how somebody like that would sort of build that up. Um, So, I don't know. So, that's where I was really sold. Isn't it, I mean, isn't it crazy how brave the filmmaking is here for, I mean, the time it came out. You're talking about one of the most powerful men in the world that he is lampooning in it. Yeah. Well, this is still, but you know, that's the weird thing. I mean, the timing of this, and even Chaplin said things years later in interviews, like if he had realized how terrible things actually were or would get, he didn't think, he wouldn't have been able to do it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it was, it, it would have been more difficult to find humor. Because it was, you know, it, it felt like, oh, there's no way. Nobody knew about the camps at this point. I don't think in a in a widespread way, and I and and if they did, I don't think they understood them to be what they were. They might have understood, you know, like I don't know. They were prison camps. Yes, right. Okay. But on the outside, I don't think they realized there was these mass extermination right. activities going on. I, I mean, I know a fair amount about what took place, but I guess I've never thought about how known it was at different. Well, there's periods. what's happening, and there's what's how the information and, and was you exactly. Know, there's what's happening, and what we're presenting. That's yeah. what's happening. And we're not going to fucking tell the rest of the world what we're really doing because yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I've ne- I, I I don't think that I'd ever really quite thought that hard about that aspect of it. Yeah, before. because even when you watch this film, there's a a romance to it where. And and going back to that first thirty minutes, he 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 is mistaken for a co-German soldier and helps a guy escape in an airplane. And there's a really funny part about 
the the guy, give me some water, I'm fainting, <laughs> because the the he's in a plane and can't fly a plane with the pilot who can, who is unconscious, and it, the 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 plane starts doing barrel rolls and then is eventually upside down. There's a great gravity gag uh, where they realize that he's you know we're actually upside down, but we're in clouds, so it's yeah. difficult to know. But that same soldier. Later on, when the uh, so the plane crashes, he gets amnesia for twenty years. He misses the gap between World War One and World right, War Two. Right. He wakes up in the middle of World War Two, a Jew, goes back to his barber shop that he has been closed for a long, long time, mm-hmm. and uh, tries to resume life as if you know everything's fine. Right? Uh, there's some cobwebs here on these yeah. tools, but other than that, uh, why does it say Jew in paint on my window? Let me just wipe that off, and right. then he gets into these comedic. Concepts yeah. of that that contextually work for this film. Yeah, yeah, but don't for Jojo Rabbit with the criticism of it. If you can, if you consider the critics of it, because right. now we have the knowledge of time and yeah. space. Yeah, but at that point, the mass world didn't understand exactly what was going on in the depths of Germany. Right, right. So, so you, you can poke fun and you can make make right. a little bit more fun. And it be more palatable and tolerable. Yeah, I mean, especially to an American audience, where again, like America's staying. And this was his out, biggest this hit in America. This is when America's still staying out of it. It's like, exactly. oh, this is what those idiots over in Europe exactly. are doing right now, yeah. and like, you Can know, you imagine, <laughs> like, yes. staying out of it. Yes. And yeah. Then, yeah. I mean, it's. Cr- I, I can because I mean, I, I'm I mean, sure. I mean, of course you can. The absence of the internet, the only information that you know is what's being given to you by I, the, the the press, which is slow in getting. Well, it but to even you. even in the era of the internet, I mean, I'm sure there are perspectives well, that we could completely different well, world. Now no, but I'm saying like there are, there are people in the world right now who would look at us sitting here and think like, how could we not want us to be more involved in Syria? How yeah, could we not want us to be more involved? Like same thing. it's. There are atrocities going on. You're living your life around the world. That which ones do you get attached to? And and we got pulled in, and I think for good reason. And I'm glad. You know, again, history has borne out that us getting involved in World War II was an important thing, and that it had to happen ultimately, and that we were able to help turn the tide. They awakened the sleeping bear. Right. So I think all that was good. Sleeping giant. But it is. It's totally imaginable to me that there would be like there would be a time building up to that point mm-hmm. where that would finally tip yeah. over. Yeah. And there are plenty of skirmishes and atrocities and what, however you want to frame them that have gone on around the world before and since that we have stayed out of. Interestingly, yeah, yeah fuck. Like how <laughs> political? Okay. Yeah. Interestingly, yeah, it's an inherently political. Li- interestingly, we're lulled now into another level of apathy about all kinds of different things. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the new iPhone's coming out. Um, the, the other thing about this film, though, is that... I don't that, know about the new iPhone, but the Motorola Razor's coming back. <laughs> it's, 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 the flip phone's back, but better than ever. Um, interesting, inter, the interesting thing about this film is watching it in the context of knowledge that you have gained since the film came out. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. The other thing is, in Charlie Chaplin's canon, this is considered to be one of his finest works. But I don't know if time... And you may have to hear me out, or maybe you agree. If you agree, we don't have to spend too much time on it. Hasn't, I don't think, been great on this film. Because one of the things you alluded to, David, I don't know if you were going this direction, is that this film is doing so many things that mm-hmm. it doesn't do any of them perfectly that said though i think it's a pretty great film that everyone should see Mm -hmm. but is it a 
Charlie Chaplin doing a uh, slapstick routine, like 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 bits. Mm-hmm. You know the, yeah. the the coin and the muffin, the coin yeah. and the and the pudding. Right. Great slapstick. Mm-hmm. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. But like a temporary showcase of that kind of comedic ability that was really great in silent film mm-hmm. that is out of context and strange in the concept of this larger, broader social commentary that he does. Yeah. A love story, if you will. It's mm-hmm. not it's not a fully fledged, fully born love story that yeah. is kind of necessary because you need a love story in a film, but not fully borne out in, in 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 any way at all. Even I, I don't think the climax of the film, when when they are now separated, and she, I don't know, if she hears his voice on the radio or imagines his voice because he's speaking so loudly and so truthfully. Yeah. Um, what a great speech there. I want to get to that. I was. Yeah. I, was I, I do want to get to that. I was mm-hmm. Waiting for my opportunity. To <laughs> right. Touch on that. Um, but but the film otherwise is 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 disjointed. In my opinion, great uh-huh. little slapstick. The the um, the not emperor, but the it's the Italian stand-in from Bacteria, I think, is the country that he's from. And the yes. train is going back yeah. and forth on the station, and they got yeah. and he won't get out of the train until the red carpet is rolled out. But the train keeps moving back mm-hmm. and forth, and you get you know funny silent film stuff in a new. Not a new anymore, but uh, the dawn of the talkie mm-hmm. is that tired audiences, I guess, liked it at the time. But the film is disjointed, I think, up until we get to this climactic speech where how much plot do we want to go into? The yeah. Charlie, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the uh, the Kunkler Hitler Hunkler oh, Hinkle Hinkle. Uh, he realizes how much he looks like him because of a fortuitous group of events, and then he has to give a speech because the real Hinkle has been knocked out cold, and he yeah. is he is trying to get across enemy lines into into a territory where he can be free and is mistaken for him. And now, hey, you, poor barber, need yeah. to give a speech as mm-hmm. Hinkle. As Hinkle, yeah. I mean, I think most of the film is leading up to that. Like, I don't think that. Chaplin was confused about how important that speech was going to be, or how no. impactful that that was going to be. A, so a, I mean, you're, a Jew, you're you're going there, layman. You know? That's where we're getting able to speak as Hitler to that yeah. crowd. What would I say to them? And it's still, I mean, to this day, is one of the most poignant speeches, most poignant monologues in film history. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking at this point, what, almost 80 years later? It mm-hmm. came out in 40. Yeah, so it'll be 80 years mm-hmm. next yeah. year. And it still holds its ground as one of the most deeply affecting speeches, monologues, uh, in the American canon of film. Mm-hmm. Three minutes long. And he kind of says it all. Yeah. And we should post that on all of our social media. We are media. not cattle. We are men. Because he mm-hmm. basically says, hey, wake the fuck up. Yeah. Right. If right. you are an oppressor, what is our lot in life together? What are we doing here on this planet together? What are we trying to explore and be together? Oppressors over the oppressed or a humanity that lives in unison trying to better everybody at one time and you can't ignore or you can't argue with anything that he says and it is beautiful yeah but it is and and what i mean and what a what a like statement 
for a silent film star in the most that he's ever talked out in like one stretch. When Charlie Chaplin gets to say and use his voice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What does he, fi- he have to say? When he finally uses his voice in a real way, that's what he gives us, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I think that I think that's like I mean it, it, it's a if his if the actual speech wasn't poignant enough and wasn't impactful and meaningful enough the fact like the context of a silent film star using their first real moment of you know speech of being able to like speak in film to do that i mean he did a good job i well i think you know i think it might be dare i say unprecedented for someone to take a new uh technological leap and use it in such a way yeah, I mean it's it certainly stands out for for that very reason, and especially since he had been such a holdout, right? I mean, we're talking about you know thirteen years after thirteen the first years talking. since the introduction of sound film, and and a good decade after its you know dominance, and yeah. you know like pretty much, um, had, and everyone's been, waiting for him, right? Right to do it exactly, and you know he's he was like one of the last holdouts. Yeah. And imagine so the criticism: Does he have what it takes to speak? Yeah, he certainly has what it takes to be a. a you know, a, a, a silent film actor, right? A, a presence film on star, screen. yeah, right. The biggest star again, and, a, a and, film and, at the time. And you know, to talk about movies about movies, we see it in Hail Caesar. Mm. There's a sequence in that where a very popular silent film actress yeah. finally has the opportunity to speak and is terrible. Well, <laughs> I mean, and and you know, going back to singing, singing in the, the rain, rain. I was yeah. going to say like the whole plot of singing in the rain, uh-huh. you know, or or a lot of it is, you know, about like how does that yeah, exactly like up top singing in the rain. <laughs> there it is. Um, you guys heard it at home. Yeah. I also want to give the the, the I, I did laugh out loud one hard like hard one time, and that was the gag where the um Propaganda? No, the propaganda propaganda minister was telling them how we had set up the entire room to be psychologically effective uh, as he negotiates with the um, Bacterian R- right, Emperor. Right, right. Uh, your 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 seat is going to be up high, and his seat will be yeah. down low. Okay, that didn't work for me. That whole gag didn't work until they go get a shave, and then they start to elevate the barber yeah, chairs. Yeah, I laughed out loud at that. That was <laughs> yeah. just funny. That is funny. So again, this movie is so worth watching. I will say that as beautiful as the speech is at the end, it's just it's another disjointed element of this film. It doesn't fit in with the rest of it uh, for for me, except for the message that Charlie Chaplin, director, writer, world's biggest movie star at the time, used his power to like give his editorial about uh-huh. this fucking world war that we're in. Yeah, and I'm ready, and I'm re- you know I think it's it's it, it we will see in the future more and more efforts of our biggest stars and celebrities trying to do that for the world that we live in now. Mm-hmm. But how maybe how partisan and how separated are we as a country and even as a world where we just reject a message that is immediately against what we believe in rather than listening to the effective words that are said. Maybe yeah. it takes 80 years to hear what we were being told well, at the time. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, that's I, pretty fucking deep. Thank you. You're <laughs> <laughs> this film hangs together a little bit better for me, I think, than it does for you, Joe. And and I enjoyed it very, very much. No, I'm so I get glad the, I that I saw it. I never I had not seen it before. I'd always intended to. Really? Yeah, I not. Yeah. I'd seen many of Chaplin's films, but not this one. I, and I'm so glad yeah. that I was able to. The Gold Rush. That's a little higher for you. Seen it. Uh, I, I I like his silent work. It's, I think it's modern genius. Times is his best yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's no, genius. I'm, I'm a big fan of modern times, but I, and I love a lot of the silent shorts and mm-hmm. you know. The, I mean, the, the tramp character is wonderful. He's that's not the an, tramp here, but he is. No, that's I I love that element yeah. of this too. Uh-huh. That like m- many film historians make the case that this is like the final instance of the tramp character. Yeah, the barber is kind of the tramp, right? Kind yeah. of. Yeah, and and well, but even the fact that he's doing Hinkle and that. Like the the iconic sort of mustache being shared between him and Hitler, as like Hitler probably, stole his mustache. Let's be honest. Yeah, that that you have like the Must two have been a big uh, Gold Rush fan. Yeah, you don't yeah. see the Hitler mustache often. Well, that's anymore. the thing. Like, yeah. it, you <laughs> kind of killed it, didn't it? Unless you're it doing did. a tramp costume, you can get away with it if you do the bowler hat and, yeah. and that. But you it know. takes a lot more in the ensemble to make it right. You couldn't. You can't just do it on its own. No, no that's not a good that idea. Um, but it wasn't a great mustache. So let's be honest. No, I don't think you know. It's well, I, it was great for the tramp. <laughs> Terrible for Hitler, um, and but, but can you imagine? But it's like the John Waters mustache. Like, okay. I love the John Waters mustache on John Waters. Yeah. I can't think of any other person in the world who could have that mustache. And God, that I would no. say it was a good idea. I saw a Yosemite Sam mustache today in real life, and I kind of went, "Fuck, you're the man." I just, I, I well, really, that's that's pretty. I mean, yeah. to be able to pull that off, I just can't imagine seeing somebody even like remove it from the context of you know. A genocide or whatever. Uh, with that, <laughs> I think you came up with an episode title. Remove it from the context of a genocide. That that uh, is a good episode the, title right there. I just don't find it to be a flattering style of facial hair. It seems the mustache in general. In general, uh, removed of the context, I don't think I that don't it's. A great that, I mean, I feel like that. You didn't say that during right Smoking and the Bandit. Thank you very much. Who had that in Smoking the Bandit? Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds. We think have a we Hitler think no, okay, you're talking Hitler. about a Hitler mustache. You're talking about, I'm talking about a Hitler. Yeah. Edit all of this just out. The, Edit yeah. all of this out. No, just okay. that that like I'm not committed to the edges of my mouth just right, right over just right the, under the nostrils yeah. nose and down only the width of my nose can right. have yeah. facial hair no what what were you doing yeah well it's, which yeah. you know i don't know kind of extends to the soul patch for me i've, I've never oh, been a soul bad patch look. fan yeah bad look yeah especially if it's just that no that's no, what i'm talking about okay, i mean yeah. like yeah soul There's patch an... incorporated into other things makes but no you I can't mean, just do a soul like patch. a like just a mustache and a soul patch also a bad look you get yeah. a very um, yeah, like devilish kind of look. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> We're getting off. welcome. Welcome to uh, beer and facial hair. <laughs> beer and a movie and, and a mustache. Hair. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, th- th- but going back, I just want to make sure that like I do. I understand where you're going. It kind of moves back and forth. It's between disjointed. These and my favorite parts are the parts in the ghetto. My favorite parts but are I the really, part of no. Of, I love the parts in the ghetto, but you know, I love the the, the globe balloon scene. I mean, like again, Chaplin. 
looking for set pieces to yeah. set up his ability to do physical comedy. And the, and there's something wonderful about just seeing because you don't, don't don't disagree with you what don't you get said. to see performers just kind of do that kind of physical uh-huh. thing on film in the same way that we once did. It's so driven by. I mean, even our action films, which are very physical, are so driven by CGI these days. Oh yeah, yeah. so much like it's just oh the re- the war scenes. I'm sorry, yeah, to interrupt you. The first scene where there's a long pan shot mm-hmm. of the the foxhole and the path that yep. it takes yep. gorgeous filmmaking yeah. yeah and the uh uh the same um battlefield scene but it's bookended yeah it, gorgeous filmmaking right and yeah. and and the the effects the practical effects the uh the the what do you call it when the the rear projection effects? Yeah, the the height of nineteen forties filmmaking. Yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, and you can tell he's got a budget, and you can tell he's Charlie Chaplin, the biggest film star in the world, mm-hmm. F- writer, director, film star, right, composer. Yeah, uh, but at the same time, was he a composer? Yeah, I didn't know that. Dis- mm-hmm. Disjointed, disjointed film overall with a beautiful climax. Mm-hmm. That that everyone should see, and we, yeah. we will post it on our social yeah. media. Sorry, well, sorry, to interrupt. The, so, but but just go back. I just I really appreciate getting to see that kind of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because because it's just not something you see now. And so, w- whenever I get the chance, watching it again, it just made me sad that I wasn't seeing it on a big screen. I love it when these films are shown on the big screen, and I will take every opportunity I can. To, Didn't you to go, go to a Steamboat Junior screening recently? Steamboat Bill Junior, yes, the <laughs> Buster Keaton. <laughs> That's what I said. Uh, Steamboat Bill Junior, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I envy you, David. You always get to you go to all. Put of some those respect things. on well, his name. Well, there we go. So, the, um, so the great dictator. It seems like we're all fans. Yeah. We, we we were you know definitely in the connection between what it's doing and what uh, what TT is doing. I think is not uh, it's not a mistake. I'm sure if we were talking to Taika, Taika, if you're listening, come on, please. The show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We'd love to have you on. We could phone you in if you want. I'm, I'm going to speak for him right now and say that he would. Fully endorse our pairing here and yeah. say, yeah, that's I, I definitely had Chaplin because I watched that film and I think, yes, this guy, this yeah. is a guy who has watched Chaplin and has appreciated what he does. And there's some good physicality in uh, in Jojo Rabbit as well, and in, in many different sequences. So speaking of physicality, yeah, how'd you feel about this beer? <laughs> I gotta well, how tell did you, you feel about I gotta it? tell you, when you've got a 12 ounce beer and you pour it carefully into three. Like measurable four ounce pours, the best way to enjoy it is to not fucking pour your entire thing out before you start. No, yes, I did Mr. pour Cooper. most of it onto my lap. Yeah. I feel bad for um, you. because it was tasty. devastated by. But it. I enjoy the. But um, there, but there was enough. I did have a few sips before yes. I fucked oh, okay, it up, okay, okay. and yeah. I had a couple of sips left afterwards. I've got to tell I very you. much enjoyed this uh, oak aged vanilla worldwide. Style. I completely agree. I think that so far it's a two out of three. Three uh, thumbs up or five stars or whatever we do here. David, we've never honed oh, in on a rating system. <laughs> no, we didn't. But no, I'm a, I'm a fan. I mean, it's it is a big, delicious beer. Full like this is that is the luscious and balanced imperial stout that I wanted. Big or well, in, in the case of uh, Big Bully, it was Imperial Porter. But that's like to me, that's where you pull rich. it off, right? Silky. It's just r- exactly rich, silky. It's got like 
a little vanilla in there, yeah. and you can taste the vanilla. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I like about, and, and now here I am, like, saying I want to empty my cellar, but, like, I remember this being a little hotter the, when I had it a couple years ago. It's smoothed out a little bit. Right. It's, it's not well. hot when it's fresh. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, you know, Carlos and I have talked about this off mic, and I don't know if you probably agree, Joe, but there is probably an advantage to some of these boozier imperial stouts to sitting on them for like a year or two to let them kind of mellow out a little bit. After that, it's diminishing returns. But this, to me, was like right in that good zone where... That's we, where I want it. We craft beer enthusiasts get a lot of shit for being as geeky as we are about it, but there are certain rules and fun that you get to have with it. And aging beers is a really real fun thing to do when it's as successful as a two-year age. Mm-hmm. David, thank you on this worldwide stout. Yeah. Because like you said, you can enjoy this right out of the bottle. You can enjoy this right off, all out of the out of the yeah. out of the kettle. Mhm. I mean, can, you I mean, can it, and it, and it can be difficult when you're dealing with a beer of this caliber. Mhm. To sit on it for 2 years. Oh yeah, I patience. I don't, don't know that I would have been able to do that. Well, when you have as many beers in your cellar as David does, it's like you, you you're not looking out at a at a thin Selection. Yeah, three. <laughs> he he Two opened, of them are pumpkinators. I one time I went to David's house and I opened the medicine cabinet in their child's bathroom and there were seventeen beers <laughs> in it. And I was like, "Holy shit! This is like where the girls are supposed to keep their toothpaste." That's nighttime juice. <laughs> yeah, no. Go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> no. The cellar is extensive. Not but, at all. Well, um, anyway, but it's being pared down as we speak. It uh, is. Yeah. Well. We've been putting in some work. So, <laughs> a lot of research. Yeah. Yes. So, so I mean, R and D. You know, I think a, a rich historical beer pairing to have with a rich historical experience here. Looking back at uh, at Charlie Chaplin, his take on Hitler, and nothing then, bad happened tonight. No, everything I don't think so. was good. I That's not true. So. I spilled a lot of beer on me. Yeah, yeah know, but, but you know, you, but then like you brought it, out this Goose Island bourbon that we're not oh, even yeah, going to talk the, about. That's the uh, that's secret the, behind the scenes. The, the, secret, yeah. the secret third beer. I love beer in a movie. Well, I do too, and we yeah. hope you do. And if you do, you should connect with us. You should connect with us. You can find us um, on, up, on Twitter uh, at Beer Movie Show. Let me make sure that I got that right. You can find us on Instagram. Yeah, it's Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and a Movie TX. As always, our home base is Beer and a Movie Podcast.com. You can find a link to listen to this episode and all of our past episodes for free. There is no paywall here at Beer and a Movie. We are a podcast of the people. If you were listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. We know you're going to give us that five-star rating. It's important. Go ahead and leave a review. Yeah. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of in the future. Quit fucking um, And subscribe, because that helps you. It helps mm-hmm. you stay abreast on when we're dropping new episodes, which, if you did not know, is every Wednesday, uh, bright and early. So you always have a little something to get you through hump day. This is and, a long episode. I just want to say, if you've made it this far, I'm super excited about next week's episode. Yeah. I'm so fucking excited it, about it, next week's it, episode. It, it has been a long episode, but we had a lot of housekeeping to do up top. Yeah, we did. And, yeah, Joe is... I'm hyped. I mean... My third favorite film. Joe's seat is dripping right now, it is. thinking about... I'm so wet. 
the oh, next episode. God. We just lost ourselves some listeners. <laughs> All right. Maybe not. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, oh, God. let us all unite. Oh, boy.